tonight, if you would, even though we're in the Old Testament, we did this last time where we jumped forward into the New Testament in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, if you have your Bibles. That's where we'll start. Shoot, my glasses are so dirty. That's terrible. The, um, but I won't be able to read if I don't wear them. So, um, so John chapter 1, and tonight the subject that we're going to... Oh, thank you. Yeah. The subject that we're going to be dealing with tonight is the subject of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, and we'll get there eventually tonight. But, you know, I was thinking, even as I was just going over my notes a little while ago before we got started, or before I came down here tonight for us to get started, I was thinking to myself, how neglected these type of things are for us as 21st century Christians, and maybe just Christians, New Covenant people in general, I think that we're likely to neglect these things, the things that we find in the Old Testament, particularly in those first five books of the Old Testament, the institution of the law, the tabernacle, eventually the temple, all those things that were so important in the life of Israel and really so important in the life of Christ and the disciples, the apostles, the early Christians understood these things and they held a great deal of significance for them. But for us, I think that they're very, very neglected. And I tried to think in 15 years, have I ever preached intentionally on subjects like the tabernacle? I don't know that I can remember doing, doing that in 15 years. And so I just want to draw our attention to that, that. I think it's something that's neglected, but it's something that's really, really important. And I wanted us to start in John chapter 1 because there's an interesting statement in John chapter 1 about Jesus that helps us to understand the tabernacle. And in John chapter 1, you know how it begins, where John is um, explaining to, uh, to his readers about who Jesus is. It starts with this statement, in the beginning was the Word. And he calls Jesus by that name, the Word. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not or has not overcome it. And so he's given us this statement about Christ. And then we get over to verse 14, and he makes this statement. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The interesting thing about that is verse 14 when it says that the Word became flesh. When John tells us the Word became flesh, he's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus putting on human flesh, that leaving behind his position at the right hand of the Father, coming down, putting on flesh, becoming fully man. But he says there in the same breath that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. And it's an interesting uh, little statement there that doesn't really do a great job of, of translating the, the Greek because the Greek really almost literally means he became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Or even more specifically, the word is used, it could be used, and I think the Holman Christian Standard, I don't know if any of you have that or have an app, you could check it. I think that may be the Bible who did this. But more specifically, the word could be translated, or that statement could be translated, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what it literally means. And that statement that he tabernacled among us. And so when we talk about Christ tabernacling or 
pitching his tent or, or dwelling with us. We're talking about him being physically present with us. You know that we, we call Jesus by the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He's actually with us. And so we're talking about him dwelling physically with his people. And, it's, and when we get to the Old Testament subject of the tabernacle, we're addressing the same issue. God dwelling physically, locally with his people. And it's not that he's restricted. Don't get the idea that the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 26, and, and just so you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time reading about the tabernacle in Exodus. I'm just going to talk about it and then lead you to another passage in the book of Hebrews here in a little bit. But, but it's not when the tabernacle is instituted in the book of Exodus as if God is now going to restrict himself to a certain location. Right? We know that God is omnipresent. He's, he's not restricted to any one location. But the tabernacle itself becomes the place where, where God really chooses to identify that place as the place where He will dwell with His people. Now, in the book of Exodus, there's three major themes. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. Two of them we've already covered. The first theme that we cover in the book of Exodus is the Exodus. I mean, where it gets its name. The Exodus and then sort of the Passover is lumped in there together with that. But that's the, the first major theme in the book of Exodus. The second major theme, which we dealt with last time. Does anybody remember what we dealt with last time? The law. The law. Thank you. I know Linda takes notes, so good job. The giving of the law. So we have the Exodus, God's people coming out of Egypt. And then we have God giving them the law where God's going to talk to them or explain to them how they're going to live in relation to Him and how they're going to live in relation to the people around them. So love God, love people. That's a summary of the law. So God does that. And then we get to the third big theme of the book of Exodus, which is the establishment of the tabernacle. So the establishment of the place where God will physically be present with His people. And this is a pretty significant moment in the history of Israel, really in the history of the world. Because this is the first time... Uh, after the Garden of Eden, where we're going to have God specifically dwelling in a certain place or establishing a sanctuary where God's people would meet with Him. In fact, it's funny when we use that word, sanctuary. I had a seminary professor who refused to use the word sanctuary whenever he talked about a, a, a place like this or a room like this. And he would refuse to use that word because sanctuary really means what? A place where God dwells, and God doesn't dwell in this room, you know. And so, this really we call it a sanctuary, but really, uh, it's, it's not not necessarily that thing. But this, the the tabernacle, and, and eventually the temple that would come after that, would become a place where God would dwell with His people. And up to this point, it hasn't been a physical place where God dwells. Up to this point, God has really just made His presence known in, in times in certain places, right? He would set aside times or places. Like think about uh, time, a time that God set aside as sacred. And that would be at the Passover, right? God told the people at the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, he said, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So he, he sets aside a time, he makes it time sacred. And then he says, Later on, after he explains the ex, or the Passover to the people, he says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall, you shall keep a feast of the Lord throughout your generations as a statue 
forever you shall keep it as a feast. So he would set aside times as sacred. Or he would set aside places as sacred. Right? Just certain individual places. Like think about Moses when he met God at the burning bush. What did God say to him when Moses arrived there? Take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. Because the place where you're standing is holy ground. The presence of God was that place. So it was different times, all sorts of different places where people would encounter God or remember God, and they would make these places sacred. But now God is going to make a place for His people where they can see His presence with them, where He promised the patriarchal fathers that He would be with them wherever they went, wherever they went, that God would go with them. And now the tabernacle is going to become a, a sort of a physical reminder of the promise, I will be with you. So that's what we have going on here. And through all the struggles of Israel from this point forward, they could always look to the tabernacle. They could look to the dwelling place of God and realize that God was with them. All through that time, they went through the, uh, the wandering in the desert. And it's important also to, to note that it's not a physical structure yet or a permanent structure yet. It's a tent. Why is it a tent? Right, it needs to be moved because they're on the move. To this point, there there are uh, people who are going to be moving all throughout the land. And so not only is it a statement that God is with them in one place, but the tabernacle is also a statement that God is with them in every place that they go. So the presence of God is not just stationary in one place. It's wherever they go, God is with them along the way. And I think that's, you know, as I was thinking through this today, I was thinking, you know, we, we try to understand why things like the tabernacle matter to us? Why do all these things from, uh, from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, why do they matter to us? How are they practical in our lives? And I was thinking through this today, and, and I was thinking, you know, one of the most comforting things and truths in my life over the years has been knowing that God is with me wherever I go. I mean, that's an important thing for us to remember, that God is, is with us wherever we go. I think that I can say that I've lived something of a nomadic life. You know, I've, I've, I was trying to think through today, and the first 20 years of my life, I lived in seven, seven different places. I went to six different schools. We never stayed anywhere for, um, we, we stayed the longest in Lisbon when I stayed there. That was for six years I lived in Lisbon. And you guys hear me say that's where I grew up. What I really mean is this is where I went to high school. I grew up a little bit everywhere, just bounced all over the place and and, uh, and so we've experienced sort of that nomadic life. And I was thinking then, Denise and I have been married for 22 years. And for us, um, we spent the first five years of our marriage over in Woodbine. And then we went to North Carolina for three and a half years. And then we went to West Virginia for two years. And then back to Southern Maryland for five years. And now we've been here for a month short of, or two months short of seven years. And this is now the longest place I've ever lived in my entire life right here. And, and still here, still here, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that even the place where I live now isn't really my home. It's actually your house that you allow me to live in. You know, So that nomadic experience of, of sort of going here and going there and being here and being there, and one of the things that has sustained us along the way is knowing that no matter where I am, or no matter where I'm going, God is with me every time and every place. 
And that's one of the ways, I think, that just a study of the tabernacle and and remembering this truth that God is with them and that God is going with them and that God will be there with them, that's incredibly practical for all of us as we face life day in and day out. So that's one of the ways, just the presence of God. Now I want to talk a little bit about the way that the tabernacle was located among the people of Israel. I'm going to, you guys know I'm an expert artist. You've seen me do this for years. So basically when Israel would stop and they would camp, they would, they would sort of camp in a, in a big sort of circle. That's pretty good, isn't it? For a freehand circle, that's a pretty good circle. I, I, that is just one time deal there. So then you have the tribes of Israel just sort of encamped around the perimeter or in, in circular fashion. And then in the middle, now that's obviously not the scale, but in the middle you have the tabernacle of God. So you have Israel encamped around and then the, uh, the tabernacle of God in the center. There's just several things about that that I think are significant. Several things about that that help us uh, again, to draw some really good applications. One of the things, or one of the reasons it's significant that they camped around and that God's presence was at the center was because it became a source of confidence for the people. I mean, as they went out through this land, this strange land, and as they faced different struggles and different enemies, always knowing that God was there, that God was present, that God was at the center is a source of confidence. I think of Psalm 46, and this is a psalm that I read a lot at funerals, but it's a psalm here that, that, that teaches us something important about God and reminds us something that I think that they would have thought about a lot when they were in the camp and when they looked in towards the tabernacle and saw the tabernacle. And it says, Psalm 46, 1, and 1 through 7 says this, it says, God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. And I love that statement. That he's present. That he's there. That when there's troubling times, they're not alone. When there's trouble on the edge of the camp, God is still there in the midst. He's a present help. Therefore, we will not fear, verse 2, we will not fear, though the earth gives, gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its, at its swelling. And here you just have this idea that the world is sort of in turmoil, this tumultuous world around them. And he says in verse 4, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, and God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations range and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. And then here's the key verse, the key statement that's repeated in that psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So he's there. Imagine being in the camp and knowing as you looked in towards the center of the camp, you could see the smoke rising from the from the tabernacle, from the burnt offerings, from the, the, the offerings that were being made there, and you could see the smoke rising. And maybe from where you're at in the camp, you could actually see the tabernacle with your own eyes. And imagine just knowing that no matter what's going on around me, God is here. He's present. And so it's a source of confidence. But also, also and this is really important, 
it tells us who's in authority in Israel. The positioning of the tabernacle in the midst of the people tells us about who's in a position of authority in Israel. Now, Israelites were not the only nomadic people. You know, in those days, there were other nomadic people who traveled around and they, they would stop in different places and, and form camps like this. And in similar fashion, they would camp this way. And, and there were also other nations that weren't necessarily nomadic, but from time to time, they would go out as a nation. They would go out, the men of the nation would go out and they would move off. In particular, they would go out to make war against other nations and to go out and fight battles. And when they stopped, they would camp this way. And it was typical in ancient times for the people to camp in that circular fashion. And as you move towards the center of the camp, the person whose camp was right dead in the center of it all was always the king. So that was the place that was reserved for the king, for the ultimate authority, for the highest position the person who was encamped in the middle. And so any time that Israel was camped, and any time the tabernacle was stood up in the midst of them, it was a statement about who their king was. And up at this point, as they're wandering through the wilderness, to this point, there's no earthly king for Israel. There's no man at the head of Israel. There's a prophet who's leading them. But who's their king? God is their king. And God is meant to be their king. And God only gives them a king when they beg for it long enough. And he says, fine, I'll give you a king. And you're going to find out exactly what it's like to live under a man now. And immediately things get pretty bad for them. But to this point, as they're camping and as the tabernacle is being set up time and time again, what they're doing is they're making a statement that their only king is God. And so we have a source of confidence and we have a a statement about who's the authority in Israel, and then we have the tabernacle itself, and and um, maybe I can, because I, I want you to sort of get a glimpse of what would have gone on in that tabernacle, or what would have been happening here. So here we have just sort of the, the outer perimeter of the of the tabernacle itself, and I think I think somebody can look in their study Bible if you got one. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think, or if I'm right. I think that this entire structure was about 1,200 square yards. It's big. It's enormous. And this is not a, this, you know, sometimes we look at these pictures and, and uh, we see a, a, they, somebody throws a man or a goat in here and suddenly this thing looks as big as this room, right? Because the scale, our minds go to the scale. But this is an enormous structure. So you have this, this big outer uh, curtain it's erected around it. And then here you have the, the, the gate leading into the outer court of the tabernacle. And this is always facing east. And that's significant. Some people think it's very significant. But that's always facing east. And then here in the outer court you have where the regular sacrifices are happening. So the regular sacrifices. So all these little squares that I drew around the perimeter, these are just places where tables where they're making sacrifices. So I think it was Sunday where I mentioned that the priest in the Old Testament was essentially just a butcher, right? He's just a butcher. Now, he's not just a butcher, but that, I mean, that's what he, he just spends a lot of time butchering animals. And so out here, there's all these tables where they're, the people are bringing their offerings and the priests are offering uh, or butchering. And then here you have the, the altar. This is the brazen altar made of bronze and has 
these four horns on it, and this is the place where they would have been burning offerings. And here, um, this is, uh, I forget the proper name for this, but this is essentially the, the bath. It's a pool of water, dish of water, it's made of bronze, and where the priests come out, and they do their ceremonial cleansing. They do their washing, they have to take a bath before they're able to, to properly do the, the sacrifices. So out here in the outer court, you have where the regular sacrifices are taking place. And then as you move in here, then you have uh, a holy place, or the holy place. And then here you have uh, other elements, and you're moving closer now into the, uh, the presence, the, the actual presence of God, and where God's place is in here. And then you have, as you move in, this is the veil here. Did I spell that right? That doesn't look right. How do you spell Veil. V-E-I, I did have it right. Okay, so this is the veil, and then you have the most holy place. And then here you have the ark and the mercy seat of God here in the most holy place. So you're, you're sort of moving inward. If you can kind of imagine it that way. You're moving from outside And you're moving inward towards the most holy place. Where there was only one, the priest was allowed to go in there once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and offer sacrifice for the people. And then also the elements, also you have this sort of movement inward into the presence of God. And then the elements are significant as well, because out here as you move inward, things become increasingly... Um, uh, you, you have, I don't know what the right word is, but you have like bronze, and then you're dealing with silver, and eventually by the time you get inside, you're dealing with gold. So this is a progression of things are becoming more and more important, more and more pure as you get in there, more and more holy as you work your way inward towards the most holy place. And so you have this this place, also there's in here the altar of incense, which is pretty important as well, where the representing the prayers offered up, and God says that the prayers would become a sweet-smelling aroma, now to him, but also to the people, right, to the priests who were there, because how, how many of you ever butchered animals of any kind? Yeah, it doesn't always smell real good, does it? So imagine what it smelled like out here. I mean, just seriously, just on a practical level, imagine what it was like out here. It probably stunk horribly. Imagine what it was like when the sun beat on the blood and the... the all, yeah. But just, I mean, anybody who's ever dealt with an animal, with opening up an animal and doing those things, it was a bloodbath. It really was. Yeah. It was a bloodbath. And, um, and so you have, moving inward again... It's interesting that, you know, you have, as you move into the holy place, leaving behind the, the goriness of what's going on out here, you're moving into the holy place, now you have incense burning, things are becoming different, the elements are gold now, you're moving into the presence and the purity of God. So they're moving inward, and so the, the significance of the tabernacle itself is that it's first and foremost a picture of God's redemptive work with his people. David just mentioned that. That it's really pointing us, and we're going to go there in a minute, 
in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, but it's pointing us to something bigger. And there's all kinds of things that are happening here that we could spend the, the, the rest of the month of our Wednesday nights before we take our summer break dealing with what goes on in the tabernacle. But just a couple of things, you know, and one of the things that's interesting, I mentioned the, the, the gate of the tabernacle facing east. Now, it always faced east, and there were uh, other elements in there that, that theologians look at, and they say that this, in a sense, the, the tabernacle, when the tabernacle was, was um, given to the Israelites, when it was explained to Moses and they, he explained it to them, that there's something here about sort of a, a, a reinstitution of Eden. That there's things happening here. In fact, in the ESV study Bible, if you guys have that, and I bring that up because a lot of you have it, in the note uh, in Exodus chapter 26, introducing the passage, it talks about that, and it says that there are parallels. And it says the parallels include the east-facing entrance guarded by cherubim, the gold, the tree of life, um, being represented by the lampstand that would have been inside of here, and the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would have been also sort of had its fulfillment in the fact that the law of God was contained in here. And so thus it says that God's dwelling in the tabernacle was a step towards the restoration of paradise. So just one small step, right, towards the restoration of what was lost in Eden, that, that paradise that was in Eden. And this is eventually would reach its culmination in the book of Revelation. But isn't that what God's doing in His redemptive work is He's restoring what was lost in a sense that there's he's bringing about a, a restoration and a a redemption of not just individuals but of everything sort of putting it back together until we get all the way to the end of the book of revelation where we see God's dwelling place again with men and it says that he's the one who sits on the throne says behold I'm making all things new so there's this restoration or this by by placing the tabernacle in the midst of the people God is showing that he's already putting things back in order. He's doing the work. He's putting it back in order. But the, the most important work, when we talk about the redemptive work of Christ that's foreshadowed here, is that it's pointing to the atoning work of Jesus. It's pointing clearly to the atoning work of Jesus. So it was a place of sacrifice and then ultimately moving forward into the Holy of Holies and the Day of Atonement where the high priest the one high priest of the, of the nation of Israel would enter in on that one sacred day a year and he would take blood and he would enter into the most holy place and he would offer that into the, the, on the mercy seat of God and it would be offered there for the sins of all of the people. So you have the high priest interceding. Now look in Hebrews chapter 9 with me real quick. And I'm not going to read every verse. I'm just going to read a few of the verses. But I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 9 that we have sort of an explanation, an explanation in the New Testament about what was going on at this place in the Old Testament. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Verse 2. Y'all there? All right, verse 2. For what? For what? What was there? There was a tabernacle or a tent was prepared. The first section in which there was a lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence is called the holy place. So here we have the holy place. And behind the second curtain or the veil was a second section called the most 
holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides in gold, in which the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. So there's the contents of the Ark. Verse 5, and above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood, for he offers, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of of the people. And so now he's talking about this ritual of Israel going into this place that was prepared by their hands. And the high priest would go in verse 11, skip to verse 11, where it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here we have the writer of Hebrews, and we could go on. It's, there's wonderful statements in all throughout chapter 9 and chapter 10 about the, the supremacy of the sacrifice of Christ, the supremacy of Christ as our high priest over the high priest of Israel. But I just wanted to read you those verses to help you understand that, that it's not, this isn't one of those places where we look in the New Testament or the Old Testament and we think maybe we can draw a parallel there, try to see something there. This is something that's explicit. Everything that was happening here was pointing directly to what Christ would eventually do when he arrives. It was meant all throughout those those centuries, those, those years of this and the temple and all that went on there were ultimately all pointing forward to the one high priest who would come and he would eventually enter into the most holy place not made with hands where he would offer up his own blood as, as the final sacrifice for all sin forever. And then in chapter 10 it says in there he would sit down at the right hand of the Father. It was over. It's finished. All of this pointing forward to God. So we have in that institution of the tabernacle, we have God fulfilling His promise to be present with His people. We have God showing Himself as the King of His people. And ultimately, we have God setting in motion physically, invisibly for the world to see His redemptive works, restoring what was broken at the fall and ultimately pointing us forward to the one high priest who would arrive and who would finish the work that was started the first day the first priest stepped in here and made a sacrifice. Eventually Christ would come and fulfill it. And this runs all through the life of the people of Israel, all through the Old Testament. So the tabernacle, the presence of God, the authority of God, and the redemptive work of God in our lives is all present here in this strange thing that we don't talk a whole lot about.